Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and today I'm talking to Dan Buxban about his new book, Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music. You can now listen to episodes on the BrotherPod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. You can also interact with us directly through our talkback feature. Ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at BrotherPod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk to Dan Buxpan about how he carved out new real estate when it comes to talking about a story that's been talked about many times in his new book, Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with Dan Buxpan, uh, noted author and most recently the author of the 50th anniversary Woodstock book, Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music. Hello, Dan. How's it going? Good. Good. I've been uh, doing a lot of homework on Woodstock of late, and I, I, I imagine I'm doing a hell of a lot less than you. Um, how did this book come about? And, and uh, tell me about, a little bit about the research process for something that we seem to know a lot about. Um, okay, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, the project was sort of offered to me by uh, the publisher through a packager. And uh, they just said, we want a book about Woodstock. It's the 50th anniversary. That was really it. Those were the parameters. And uh, at first I thought, like, okay, well, you know, I'll focus on the music. That's really what I've done before, and that's what I feel like I have the most to say about. And um, what I wanted to do was, you know, interview, you know, whoever was still alive that performed and that sort of thing. And I I found really quickly that that was not going to work uh, because a lot of people who perform there don't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, at least they didn't want when I would call them. They, uh, just out of exhaustion? Out of exhaustion or, or just? Um, well, I, I'm not going to name any names, but there were a couple of people uh, who I got a hold of who were like, look, man, everything's been said about this that can be said. Just just read up what's on the internet. Just copy that for your book. Like, you know, like <laughs> really, like, people were, like, really not happy to talk about it. That's uh, kind of hostile. Yeah, I was, I was really kind of taken aback by it. I really wasn't expecting that at all. Um, but I was like, okay. Um, but I, you know, I kind of forged ahead anyway, thinking like, well, you know, I'll, I'll find somebody. And I ended up speaking to the manager of Canteen. And when I was talking to him, he goes like, you know, who's, you know, who's your publisher and what are you doing? Because I have um, uh, requests for interviews right now from five other authors who are also writing books about the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And that really got me thinking, like, oh, okay. Um, I have to really find some way to approach this book so it's not the same thing that everyone else is doing. 
there has to be some kind of like fresh approach to this that uh, will make make my book somehow different from like the you know fifty or other books that are going to be up there on the shelf, uh, you know, for the anniversary. Um, for, you know, a lot of them by people who are a lot more famous than I am, uh, who are considered authorities on these matters and that sort of thing. Um, and after a while, uh, I decided like, oh, maybe what I should do is speak to people who are in the audience. Because uh, as far as I knew, there were, there were not actually a lot of audience accounts out there. And uh, that seemed kind of strange to me because, like, you know, really the audience members are the ones who are the best qualified to talk about how it really was. Because uh, they had the most uh, common experience of anybody. They could really say what it was like to be there. And uh, what I learned was that everyone my age has an uncle or an aunt who had gone to Woodstock, was dying to talk about it. They could not wait to talk about it. So I, you know, they would, uh, I'd be put in touch with them and they would just talk for like 90 minutes uh, about how they got there, uh, how there was no food, how there was nowhere to go to the bathroom, how they slept in the rain. Um, and that all just, that was all just so much more interesting to me than talking about Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner for the 500, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it became a lot more about that. I still uh, did accounts of the musicians, you know, I mean, I, uh, the crew and the setup of the show and all that sort of thing. But to me, it's really about uh, the audience members. That's really what the book is about for me. And uh, I think it, it uh, you know, almost by accident, because that wasn't what I was intending, uh, turned into a much more interesting book that way than what I had originally thought I would do. I remember uh, talking to you when this project came up, and and I told you I had a former coworker who got stuck on the throughway and gave up and went home. Yeah. Um, and you were yeah. like, and you were like, bring it on. So you know, yeah. it's it's kind of, it's very funny. But so what were what were some of the the sort of standout anecdotally? Uh, what were some of the sort of standout interviews you did? I mean, is it has it become very romanticized? Do you think? And revisionist, or do you think you got some? You know, do you feel like you got a lot of you know clear memory? On some of this, oh, there was some, there was some real squalor in a lot of it. Uh, one thing I really did not want, uh, and you know what I what I really had a problem with from the outset was how much uh, you know how many urban legends there are, mm -hmm. and how this this has kind of turned into a myth. And you know, myth is great for something that's a thousand years old, but for something where the people involved are still alive. Uh, you don't have to do that. You have the reality right there that you can ask people about. And, well, um, you get the you ability to debunk. Everything. What's that? I said you have the ability to debunk the myth to a degree. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, uh, one of the first things I wanted to write about was the brown acid that is so famous, you know. And I learned that there was no brown acid. I learned that there was no baby born there. Uh, you know, all these things that we think happened did not happen. Um, I also learned that, uh, you know, from one guy that I talked to, that there was a couple riding to the concert naked on a motorcycle, and they got stopped by a cop who was like, you can't do that, that's against the law, and so he made them put on helmets, <laughs> and then they, you know, and then they kept starting going naked, you know. Um, stuff like that is just so much more interesting, I think. Um, and as far as the brown acid, probably all that was was just acid that was cut with speed. So, I mean, it's either that there was no brown acid or just that it's a very disappointing story. Well, the brown, so, you know. yeah, the brown acid around is not too good, I believe, was the quote. 
So, um, like you and I, I mean, we're about the same age. We grew up, I was born around the time of Woodstock and sort of grew up with this mythology. Um, Do you find that a lot of it's being um, sort of discounted as, I mean, obviously it's being, you know, you're you're learning a a broader story doing this book, but the stuff that we sort of grew up believing, um, you know, was it, uh, you know, has the information age kind of killed some of that uh, mythology or do you think that it's able to live on and Woodstock sort of still holds a place in people's minds? Um, it's still very top of mind. I mean, the, you know, I don't think that they would have been trying to still put on, um, you know, a 50th anniversary concert if it wasn't something that still resonated. Um, you know, and, and I mean, as far as that not working out, it wasn't because people weren't interested or people wouldn't have gone because since since that event was canceled, there are a bunch of other events that have sprung up that people are going to uh you know, that shows that it's, it's still very much on people's minds and people are still thinking about it very much. Um, I think what happened was um, the time in which it took place, there was not nearly the level of news coverage that we have now. And there was very little, um, you know, there were no reporters on the ground, really. There wasn't anybody really at the site except for a couple of newspapers. And so a lot of the information that got out initially was anecdotal. Um, then there was the movie, the, the soundtrack album, and that was really all that a lot of people had to go by. Um, and as as the years have passed, a lot more has come out, and it's become a lot more widely understood what the event was really like. But, I mean, I still talk to people who aren't even aware that the weather was horrible the whole time, mm-hmm. which to me is like, all you need to do is you know just watch, watch the movie or even just listen to the soundtrack when they're chanting, no rain. Mm-hmm. And you have to think, like, oh, that means it rained. You know, a lot of people don't know that. Um, I think their mental image of it is of, like, you know, a couple of hippies holding hands, uh, you know, skipping down a grassy hill, you know, like the opening credit to the Teletubbies. <laughs> I think is kind of what it's turned into. And, it, you know, it's just, you know it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say, like, it was this, like, unpleasant dirge that was horrible for everybody either, but it, it, it really, it took a lot of work. It, it required work, work, yeah. And it, yeah, that, that gets overlooked. Like, that tends to get overlooked. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I think the Teletubbies actually dropped out of Woodstock 50 uh, as of a couple of weeks ago. So, um, yeah, when they were released from their contract, when they moved the venue, <laughs> the Teletubbies dropped out. Yeah, yeah they, they, they're not big fans of uh, the Meriwether Post Pavilion. Um, but the, that is one of the things, though, that kind of, you know, I mean, you can't help but but know, you know, note in this. And I know that your book is largely, um, I mean, is very focused on the event itself and the people who attended the event itself. But, you know, if you take it, you know, extrapolate it out through history, they have tried to redo this again in 99 to, uh, you know, very um, kind of a very dark chapter. And then again oh, yeah. this year. Uh, when they tried to do the 50th and it, it fell apart. And it, both times, I believe it was, you know, Michael Lang and some of the original yeah. promoters that were, uh, tell me a little bit about that, like what their, um, you know, actually, well, I can, I'll phrase that in a question that's a little bit easier to answer. I know that uh, the promoters, Josh, John, Michael Lang, uh, Artie, they took a bath on the original Woodstock and really uh turned to profit later on as the myth kind of grew. So I believe they were the same people that were behind the attempt in 99 and the, in this year's attempt to uh, sort of recreate some of the 
um, vibe of Woodstock and, and, and these two concerts. Is that that's correct? Uh, more or less. Uh, there, there was never another event where all four promoters were involved together at the same time again. It was okay. just the first time. And for the second one, I think it uh, was 94, I think it was Michael Lang and R.B. Kornfeld. Mm-hmm. Or it was Michael Lang and John Roberts. I can't remember which one. Uh, but there was never another event with the Woodstock name that all four of them worked on after that. Um, and John Roberts died in 2001. So, you know, that, that was the end of that. Um, but from 99 on, it was really, uh, my understanding is that it really was Michael Lang's show at that point. Um, and, so, you know, I mean, I spoke to Artie Kornfeld, and he, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to do too much, like, you know, he said, she said on this, but I mean, I, I think he really, the prevailing attitude uh, among the surviving promoters was that, you know, the first one was was enough. Mm-hmm. And and you can't really go back and do it again. Um, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for them. I don't want to. You know, I don't. I don't want to sound like I have inside knowledge that I don't have or anything like that. But I, I, I really got a feeling. It's the impression from talking to them. That, you know, that they just kind of felt like it was great that this happened. Uh, it's it was, it was kind of its success was extremely fluky in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, and maybe we should just leave it at that. Um, at the same time, if I had ownership of a brand name like Woodstock, if I was the owner of that uh, and the 50th anniversary was coming up, it would not, I would not hesitate to be like, hmm, how, you know, what, can, what can I do with yeah. this to, to possibly, uh, you know, pat my bank account slightly? So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and judge them for it. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also part of them that's like, you know, the 50th anniversary, it's kind of the last hurrah. Uh, there will not be a 53rd anniversary <laughs> thing that anyone's going to want to go to. You know, 50 is it. Yeah. That's, that's, after that is 100. Well, it was funny. Uh, be- in terms of anniversaries. And so this is this is really the final opportunity. So I, I can understand if they wanted to, you know, kind of go out on a, on a high note. I can understand why you capitalize on that as well. I mean, a bit much like you know, this year, uh, you know, the original festival itself changed venues multiple times before it came to fruition. So it really wasn't as foreign uh, a concept as you know. I mean, you, you, the back, the, you know, give us a little bit of the backstory on the on the sort of rigors of trying to get this thing up and running to begin with. The first one, yeah. Oh. Um well, uh, uh, basically, they got this one site, and uh, when there was something like two or three weeks to go before the festival date, uh, the town passed a law uh, with all this, all these like little random nuggets in it that basically was invented in order to stop the event from happening. Like, you can't have a gathering in our town of more than five thousand people. Uh, that sort of thing, and, and uh, I mean that was the main. Uh, attribute of the law, but all of it was designed to be uh, really draconian in a way to specifically stop that festival from happening. Um, and so they had to go look for another venue because they'd already sold a bunch of tickets and it was it was happening, it was moving along. Um, and they ended up just sort of, this is what Michael Lang told me, is uh, they ended up just kind of driving around the area and they found uh 
you know, the site where the festival ended up taking place, they, they saw it and they were like, oh my God, this is perfect. This is exactly the kind of like beautiful green rolling hill that we want surrounded by trees. You know, I, mean, um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is really like... It's a beautiful really, setting. Yeah, it's a really perfect site. And it is a sort of a natural amphitheater, the way the hills kind of, you know, surround where the stage would have been. Yeah, well, you know, I, uh, my wife and I were talking, um, we were watching uh, the American Experience mm-hmm. uh, documentary about it, and, you know, all the things that went wrong, it, the fact that the sound carried as well as it did, and, like, that that wasn't a problem, uh, really was one of the things that helped save the festival, because if you'd have all these people show up and they couldn't hear the music, that would have been a serious problem, I think you'd agree. Yeah, you can't... Like, the fact that, that the... Um, that the site was kind of kind of naturally designed in the way that it was, you know, like you said, like it functioned sort of like the amphitheater in Pompeii. Uh, it couldn't have been more perfect. And the site that they did future festivals that just didn't have that same kind of, um, I don't know, they, just, they weren't carved out as well, I think. Well, you think about those those big European festivals that they you know that are you know dot the summer every year, and you know they 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 have a quarter of the people you know which is still right. a hell of a lot of people, but you yeah. know they've got video, mega video screens and and sound systems that are built out you know sort of incrementally through the crowd, and and this is just this is one stage one sound setup. Right, um, it was supposed to work a little bit. Uh, more efficiently because the way that they designed the stage was supposed to be with uh, a lazy Susan mm-hmm. where the, the band that was playing you know they'd be at the front of it while the next band was setting up at the back and then you know the band would stop playing they'd just turn it around and then the next band could come up but it did stop turning on the first day <laughs> so uh, so you got like hours and hours of delays because of that um, but you know the the ideas were good. <laughs> you know, their hearts were in the right place. Um, but, but I mean, a lot, a lot of it just didn't work out solely because there wasn't enough time, uh, you know, with the, with the venue getting switched. They mm-hmm. had something like two or three weeks uh, to get everything done, and that was not nearly, that was not going to do it. And, um, they, you know, they, it reached the point where it's like, okay, well, we have to either build the fence so people pay to get in or rebuild the stage and we can't have both so they wisely chose the stage uh, because if they charged a bunch of people admission to get in and there's no stage then you could say they've got problems yeah. yeah that is and it's funny because you know musically I think people do you know there are those sets that stand out the first Crosby Stills and Nash show um, Hendrix, obviously, uh, the Who, Sly, you know, the ones that were sort of monumental nighttime. But there's a lot of weird acts on this that, that kind of fell yeah. by the wayside. I mean, tell us a little bit about the, the sort of musical lineup that people might not necessarily know. Oh, that's easy. Shana Na. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which uh, I tell people that and they think I'm lying. Uh, or, you know, trying to somehow, like, pull their leg or something like that. But Shana Na performed. Uh, the Incredible String Band performed. Uh, you know, there are bands that just never uh, materialize. Yeah, you know, they, they performed at that. Uh, they performed at the show and just they never really cut through, and that was really kind of it for them. Um, but I, I would have to say, if you had to pick one band that was really like the "What the hell are they doing here?" moment of the show, it had to be Shana Na, hands down. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, you know they played they played at like six thirty in the morning on Monday. <laughs> uh, you know, as ever, you know, as everyone's covered in mud and the acid is wearing off and everything. I can't, you know, I can't even imagine how it must have been for the audience to see that. Uh, but they they actually in a way they went on at the perfect time and, and the audience loved them and they got a forty year career out of it. So, you know, yeah, they, I don't think there was a, there's ever been much of a movement to, to redub this John Bowser Bauman's uh, Woodstock. So No, no, which is sad. <laughs> Although he wasn't in the band at the time anyway, so. Oh, sorry, my mistake. No, that's okay. There have been 75 people in Sha Na Na. Yeah, if, if you don't if you don't get all the names right, that's okay. Did you? The times when they were in it. Did you? Were you able to reach out and talk to some of the perform some of those performers, some of the people in the lesser known bands? I mean, was that uh, one of the things that you looked to do, or or was that something? You yeah, just... uh, Melody uh, of uh, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates worth the forward. Uh, oh. Actually, uh, Elliot Kant, who was the guitar player from Shanana, gave me like great, great stuff. Because uh, he was lucid, he, you know, he wasn't doing a lot of drugs at the time, and so he actually remembered what happened and gave um, he gave some really valuable quotes and a lot of stuff that I just I don't think people do. Like um, the acts were staying at, at a hotel, uh, you know, some miles away from the site, and they, you know they get picked up by helicopter and brought to the site to perform and brought back. And Shana and I was at the hotel while Jefferson Airplane was waiting to play at the site. And uh, Elliot from Shanana and his girlfriend got put in Grace Slick's room. And he said that uh, his girlfriend just like spent the whole night trying on all her different dresses, <laughs> uh, which, you know, which were all like fringy and flimsy and gauzy. Uh, I'm certain that's not in any other account of Woodstock, but in my book, I'm positive you will not read that anywhere else. See, that's the best stuff, as far as I'm concerned. Totally, yeah. That's, that's how I felt about it. I mean, I, I would keep hearing these things, but um, it, a lot of it would get sort of practice with like, oh, I don't even know if you can use this, but, and it was always the best thing. It was always like, that's, that's the thing. That's what I want. That's it. Yeah, and, the, um, because the the, yeah. the overarching legend prevails, but this this sort of minutia of, uh, I mean, I had no idea they were even staying at a hotel. I had no idea. I kept seeing them airlifted, and, and actually didn't spend a lot of time thinking about where they were actually airli- being airlifted from. Right. Yeah. Most people don't. I didn't. Um, you know, it's, it's just something that they sort of tell you on the way. Uh, the drummer from Can't uh, told me that their roadies uh, were only able to get their equipment there by, um, you know, they couldn't get their they couldn't get the trucks through because you know there were all those cars yeah. stopped on the road, and so the roadies would just get out of the truck, call over like eight people, and move the cars to the side by hand <laughs> to, in order to get the truck through, and it took them like twelve hours uh, to get from the Fillmore East to the festival site, which, you know, normally that's like a two-hour drive. Right. Uh, but it took 12 hours, and they were only able to do it because of people manually lifting the cars out of the way. I didn't know that. Uh, when, their, when their set was done, they stole a limousine uh, that was parked backstage uh, and, and took uh, Felix Papillardi from uh, Cream and Mountain with them. And 10 years later, uh, he told me that they, they were in, in a limousine on their way to the airport or something and telling the story 
and the limousine driver turns around and he goes, you motherfuckers, that was my car. <laughs> so, again, nobody, I didn't know that. Most people don't know that. But um, to me, that's where, that's where all the good stuff is. That's where the nuggets are. Yeah. Uh, and that, to me, that's really the essence of the book. Yeah, the, the the bustable myths are you know I mean and even those I've I've you know heard before but this like minor anecdotal stuff is great I mean the the fact that the throughway didn't actually ever close is one right. of those you know debunkable myths but uh, and the and easily the, debunkable what's that easily debunkable yeah and people keep repeating it anyway yeah and then the fact that they almost sent in the national guard which actually is true um, yeah. which would have been a, a Real, really interesting wrinkle, but thankfully that didn't happen. But I didn't, you know, I didn't realize the degree to which the town, you know, really came to the rescue with the food yeah. operation. And Ed, can you tell a little bit of the that backstory? Oh yeah, um, well, you know, the, the town kind of didn't really want it there for reasons which you can, you know, probably figure out. Uh, it was, you know, it's a pretty conservative town, like about two hours north of New York City, and you know, they just didn't want, uh, you know, these long hairs you know, coming in and, you know, dancing naked to electric guitars, you know, that sort of thing. Well, let's face it, hippi- um, hippies are kind of smelly. They can be, yeah, especially 400,000 of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, once once word got out that there were food shortages and that sort of thing, I, I think uh, the people were just sort of like, you know, not on our watch. This is not, we will not be known as the town that let, you know, this let you cry it happen or something like that. It, you know, it may have just been out of pure um, self-preservation. Self-preservation, yeah, exactly. That, that may, you know, it may have been selfish motives that drove them to do that, or it may have been altruism. I don't know. Uh, but either way, uh, they really came to the rescue, and they they helped in the best possible way that they could. The army helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people helped who you, who you would have thought wouldn't have had any any who would have been very happy to just let it sail on its own. Uh, but you know, maybe in a way, maybe that speaks more to how different the time was than the festival itself does. You know, yeah. Um, I kind of think it does. Know. I mean, I, I okay. one of the one of the things, and I've seen the American Experience uh, piece as well. Is you know, one of the it's weird how you know the music. I feel like I've seen the musical performances many times, and it's become kind of ingrained but you know the thing that really kind of had my hair stand up on the back of my neck was Max Yasger addressing the crowd yeah I mean he was yeah, especially given uh, you know uh, he was he was pro-war you know law, law and order Republican but yeah but he was also he was kind of like the you know old school style Republican that was you know like a Barry Goldwater type it was more about like you know freedom of assembly uh personal freedom, individual liberty, you know, that kind of thing. It's uh, not like the evangelical assholes that we have today. You know, this this was a very different form of conservatism. And the thing that really, you know, sort of stuck out for me with that was when they were talking to uh, just citizens from the town uh, about them uh, making food and giving it to the site. And they're just talking to this one old guy, and he's like, yeah, you know, well, you know, if the kids are hungry, you got to feed them. We got to give them a fair shake. To me, that was really the moment of like, wow, this is this would not happen today. This absolutely would not happen today. I think you're right, Um, though. That is that is much more telling of the time and and the sort of, you know, the 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 uh, sort of um, you know stake in the ground that 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 this was a sort of a transformative time. That you know, these people still felt 
obliged and, and a very, uh, I think it was, you know, it feels to me like very, you know, basic altruism and, and neighborliness. Yeah. Um, again, of, of a kind I'm not sure you would see today. Um, in, a, in a way, uh, that's the part of it that I almost think is harder to relate to today than, uh, you know, than the festival itself and, uh, you know, the gathering being peaceful and that sort of thing. I think the way, what tends to get overlooked in a lot of things about the 60s and about the Vietnam Warrior and that sort of thing is just how, like, regular, non-counterculture, uh, average people uh, lived in that time. Like, my, my parents were of age uh, at the time when this happened, but they, uh, their thing that they always say is that they missed the 60s. Uh, they just, you know, they they weren't counterculture people. They were just like working for a living and just trying to, uh, you know, just carve out their their piece like everyone else. And you just don't you don't hear a lot of accounts of those kinds of people when you are hearing about this period in history. And I mean, you know, part of that is because the focus is always going to be on the major players. Mm-hmm. And that you're, you're always going to hear about Abby Hoffman. You're always going to hear about Richard Nixon. You're always going to hear about, you know, the famous names. And you're never going to hear about, like, how, you know, just having normal, regular, everyday people respond to this kind of thing. And I find that sort of thing incredibly interesting to see how it was received by everybody. Because, you know, I mean, I, one of the myths, I think, is that everyone was a hippie back then. And everyone was taking acid, and everyone was getting high, and that's not true at all. That's that's not the case at all. Um, and you know, it, it's it's unfortunate, in my opinion, that um, the way people who were not from the counterculture handled themselves in the face of society changing in front of their eyes, that that's not really looked at as much. Yeah, it's. Um, it's always sort of. It was a revolution, you know. A revolution happened in front of them, and they still had to go to work on Monday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's always that sort of binary of, of you know '50s dad versus you know hippie kid, and it's it really wasn't. I mean, there's a slower form of evolution yeah. that's going on. Um, that sort of, and you know, it, 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 there is something yeah. to you know. I mean, somebody, um, you know, like the the the. the um, uh, producers of this event. I mean, they had inherited some money, and and there is something of right. of you know the the ability, you know the the latitude you have when you have some privilege and some money in the bank to to behave in a more risky fashion than you would if you had two kids and and you know were trying to work. Right. Exactly. So. Um, yeah, I think it was I think it was Paladin money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that made it all. Yeah. Made it all it was. De- it was denture. The, the built on denture the back cream. of denture cream. Yeah. yeah, which is a great fact. Um, uh, but it's, it's fantastic. And uh, Dino also. Uh, don't forget that uh, keeping people's teeth in and relieving them of gas <laughs> is what made Woodstock happen. Yeah, I did not realize Bino was was yeah. at the heart of. That's that's yeah, fantastic. Well, he was, yeah. Um, the, well, the company was called Block. Drug. Right. They made they made Paladin, they made Dino, uh, bunch of, a bunch of other things too. But again, nothing you would ever think like, oh yeah, of course they'll make this you know rock festival. Well, I mean, not to get too graphic, but when you're serving that many hard boiled eggs, um, yeah. well, Bino and a little Paladin will never kill you. Um, yeah, this is true. Yeah. So yeah, that, that um, 
there was a couple other things I wanted to uh, talk to you about. One was um, the sort of uh, the numbers again. You know, going back to the the sort of mythology around this, but the numbers of people. You know, they always say that you know. 600,000 people went to game six of the 75 World Series. This is another one where the, the numbers of people who claim to have been there seem to have uh, climbed astronomically through the years. Yeah. How did you uh, sort through that? Did you did you wind up calling any folks that, that uh, had purportedly gone and hadn't? Or No, um, I only spoke to people who went. And um, a lot of people asked me, like, well, how did you know that they went? And, um, you know, I didn't have, you know, they didn't get fingerprinted. <laughs> yeah, there was no smell-o-rama. No, there was no smell-o-rama. And, um, you know, it, it, you, could, you could just kind of tell from the way they were talking about it. And um, the, just the sort of details that they put in that, are, that were not things people normally say when they're trying to embellish. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what they all had in common to say was, you know, it was about the level of just, like, physical... Hardship. Hardship that was involved in, you know, like there's one woman who I talked to, she hated it. She hated the entire thing from start to finish. And like she brought a suitcase with her, you know, filled with like nice new clothes, uh, which, you know, I mean, I didn't say anything when I was interviewing her, but it was like, really? Why, why would you do that? Because that's um, how you travel. And, I mean, who would know? Yeah, who would... I guess. Yeah, I guess so. And um, you know, at the end, she was like, "I just, I hated it. I, I left. I was not having a good time at all. Nobody was having a good time. Anyone who says they were having a good time was on drugs or they're lying." <laughs> you know, I, I can't imagine anyone who had not been there going to the trouble to say all that. You know, yeah. they, I think that they would, they would just kind of repeat whatever they had heard, and then throw in something like self-aggrandizing um i don't i don't think that they would talk about the amount of suffering that they did you know she was telling me that when she you know she left um after the second day uh and that she had to walk 10 miles with her suitcase back to where the car was and she got sunburned on the way but you know it's, it's a little it's in little details like that that you can tell people mean what they're saying that that's not something i don't know like when People tend to connect, I think, on pain points, mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of, I, I think, how you can tell that what people are saying is for real, that they, that they kind of tell you how bad it was. Uh, <laughs> people are, you know, if someone had wanted to tell me who had not gone to Woodstock that they had been there, it would be like, yeah, man, I saw Jimi Hendrix, I fucked some chick in the woods, everyone was naked, you know, it would just be this rundown of... Of the documentary all the, all the things we hear all the time you know it, it wouldn't be I didn't go to the bathroom for three days mm-hmm. which someone did tell me it wouldn't be I slept in a banana truck it wouldn't be you know the, just the those kinds of details are just too random and too uh, idiosyncratic to be made up uh, you know I mean I, I don't know maybe one of these people was lying to me and they made a fool of me and they got the better of me but for the most part um, everyone I've talked to about this has been like yeah you know this is really how it was you really got it right and, and mostly it's because I, I included you know people who said yeah I slept in mud for three days and it rained the entire time and I didn't have anything to cover myself with that's how it was Yeah, and no one talks about that no, it, 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 I think it's a great, you know, uh, you know, piece of history you've you've kind of come up with because there is that, you know, there is that uh, shiny habit. I mean, every, you know, all memories sort of focus back on the poster, but this was, you know, I mean, I, I was watching, um, 
the American Experience piece not too long ago, and I was thinking, like, what would all these OCD kids do today if they had to go through that experience? I don't know, but uh, I don't know. You know, maybe they would make the best make best of the thing. Or maybe maybe when you have a whole bunch of people in those kinds of like adverse conditions that they're all sharing, then to become uh, community, bring out something good in people. Um, Chip Monk, who was the (laughs) guy who made the brown acid announcement, uh, said that he thought the whole reason it was a peaceful event was because it was raining. and I did a little bit of research after that, and I, I was looking up uh, facts on what happens during riots. And riots always happen during hot weather, uh, when it's, you know, like scorching heat, that kind of thing. And there was one riot in Detroit that went on for days and days, and it stopped uh, the minute it started raining. You know, people are furious, and they're throwing bottles, and they're flipping over cars, and everything's on fire. And then it's like, oh man, it's raining. Forget it. I'm going home. You know, that's all. That's all it takes to get people to calm down. That's why LA is so, so good for rioting. Yeah, yeah. It may, it may have been as simple as that. You know, it's never rains. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why we've had several. Yeah, several. It's been how many riots now in LA? Oh, you know, there's there's every every uh, every couple of every decade, I think, for a while, and and now uh, maybe they're, maybe they're primed. Yeah, they've had some good ones, definitely, because of, of the beautiful weather. Mm. So I just w- want to give you a chance to, you know, throw in one more anecdote from the book, and then we will sign off from this Aquarian exposition. But, um, yes, yes. you know, if I'm not putting you too much on the pop quiz front, um, if you have one one more favorite that you can share with us um, before we sign off, that would be fantastic. Um. You know, I mean, honestly, like, the second I get off the phone with you is when I'll think of it. Exactly. uh, uh, The only thing that I keep fixating on and that I was really fascinated by when I first read about it was that there was only one toilet for every 257 people. Oh. And, And again, and somehow it didn't turn into a riot. That is incredible. I had never yeah, heard that like, number spelled out in that way. I knew there was a... Yeah, it was, before, it was 400,000 people that attended, and they had 1,500 porta-potties. But they didn't think that many people were coming. So it's not like... It wasn't this major miscalculation on their part. They were just not prepared for the, for the number of people who came. I, uh, and that's just what the math sort of you know, came out to. But uh, most people said that they were like, well, you know, whatever. They just went in the woods. Um, other people told me that they saw people just openly defecating right out there in the field. And uh, and like I said, one guy said he just simply didn't go to the bathroom for the entire <laughs> three days that he was there. So, you know, to me, to me that's interesting. Uh, you know, again, when you have thousands and thousands of people someone's going to have to go to the bathroom eventually how do you how do you deal with that and um, uh, again this was another thing where they were woefully uh, underprepared for it but you know somehow they figured it out so you know you have to give them credit for that I have to say judging by Carlos Santana's face um, he was one of the people that that needed to go rather relatively badly um, no he was on uh, he was on lots and lots of mescaline that he had taken like an hour earlier and he thought he was playing an electric snake. So that's what that was about. <laughs> that's a great face. Anyway. Yeah, it was a great, yeah. It, I mean, it, looked like, it certainly looked like he was smelling 
poop, for <laughs> sure. But um, no, but that was an electric snake he was playing. That's what that was all about. That's great. So anyway, the uh, the book is Woodstock: Fifty Years of Peace and Music by Dan Buxman, and it's phenomenal uh, talking to you. Thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. Thanks for yeah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Take care. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.